mental state itself <clears throat> and largely about the practice of metta as we've been introducing and teaching it here because it's a very specific form of practice different from the state itself. Mm. A lot of times when we have begun introducing this formal metta practice in a Vipassana retreat, is this is this kind of echoing? Does it sound funny to you guys? No? Yes, no. Just it to can me. be turned down just Yeah. Probably mic one or mic two. This is an audio visual night. Okay, now, can you hear that? Yeah, okay, good. It's not echoing to me. Anyway, a lot of the time, a lot of a question that many people bring up who have been doing Vipassana and haven't really done the metta practice much are kinds of doubts about the usefulness or validity of the loving-kindness practice. So some questions that come up, and they came up in my own mind before I practiced uh, loving-kindness intensively, are, you know, are we just saying affirmations? Is this sort of a feel-good practice? We're trying to talk our way into a nice mental state, which, in a way, you could say that. And what does that have to do with liberation? What does that have to do with freedom? And also, uh, another aspect is if we talk about the fact that there is no me, no self, no separate, distinct I, what's all this I'm sending wishes of loving kindness to you and you? You know, it seems that that would accentuate a sense of me and other that on the one hand you're telling us doesn't exist. So sometimes people get confused. The confusion, of course, turns out to be not in the actual practice, but as always with confusion, in our thinking about it, rather than actually just doing the practice, which is really the way it is with all of our confusions about uh, greed, hatred, and delusion, or not-self, or impermanence. It's only confusing when we're thinking about it. When we're actually experiencing, it's just how things are, you know? Not much else to say. Anyway. <laughs> I was actually quite surprised, in a way, to discover experientially, when I first practiced loving-kindness for a period of seven or eight weeks. You know, it's a, it's a practice that we do intensively in the same way that we do Vipassana intensively. In other words, saying the metta phrases to the different categories, through the sittings, through the walkings, from the moment you get up until the moment you go to bed. You know, So it's an intensive practice, just as Vipassana is. And it's a different practice from Vipassana. So we're just introducing it here. What I was really amazed to discover through my experience is that the practice of metta seemed to me to round out uh, the wisdom of non-separation, the fact that we're not really separate, that insight comes through our Vipassana practice in many different ways, in many different times. The fact of uh, our essential oneness, or the, the, you could say the vast emptiness 
the natural expression of which in our actions, in our speech, in our mind, the natural expression of either emptiness or non-separation, two sides of the same coin. The natural expressions are metta, friendliness, connectedness, or compassion, or empathetic joy, sympathetic joy, or equanimity. Those are the four so-called Brahma-viharas or divine abodes of the heart, of the mind. And while they are mental states, they are varying expressions of the truth of our non-separation, so to speak. And I was really surprised and happy to discover through my experience that while I knew I knew that the emptiness of not a separate self, I knew that to be true, the constantly arising and passing experience. I knew that from one level. Knowing it, not just intellectually, but from our experience, from the Vipassana, there's another way that the practice of loving kindness rounded that out, came in with that um, information, that experience, from another angle, so to speak. So that in the moment of experiencing just a simple sense of metta, not thinking about it, but just experiencing it, in that moment, even if it was brought about by my focus on the phrase, may you, you know, and I think I'm sending it to a benefactor, so I have the sense that I'm sending to a benefactor these good wishes. In that moment of connection, the sense of me and other falls away. And there's just simple friendliness, kindness, however you experience it. And over and over, I found that through the practice in my life as well, the sense, the false sense of separation, the habits of mind that are moment to moment creating the false sense of separation that we react out of so much, they start to be broken down through the practice of of loving kindness. It's really quite wonderful. And we don't notice that it's happening right away. That's a plug, you know, to keep doing it. But (laughs) metta is an expression of our essential oneness. We experience our essential completeness. So what I think the metta practice does on a practical level this formal practice, the way we're teaching it here, is that it helps us not to deny the habits of mind that create our sense of separation, our sense of needing something to protect. The metta practice actually helps us see through these habits of mind because in practicing metta, we actually feel how these habits of mind, basically our old friends, greed and aversion and delusion, how when we're buying into those habits, those mental states, how separation is created and how when we're not buying into those mental states but rather tuning into connection, simple friendliness, how that sense of separation, it just isn't there because it isn't being created in the moment. And this, I think, is one of the most, to 
to me, key or even liberating uh, ways of understanding the sense of separation or alienation, fragmentation, loneliness, whatever words it might fit your own particular experience of it, is that the separation, the sense of someone separate here that I need to protect, you know, by getting what I want and keeping everything I don't want away, that's actually just a misperception of how things are. It's not something that's real, the separate me, that either Vipassana or Metta practice is somehow going to dismantle and then it's going to be really scary because something that's here got dismantled and then what do we do? How are we going to function? But it's more that the metta helps us see how the sense of fragmentation, separation is just created in a moment by our habits of mind. This is from Joko Beck. Our misery stems from the misconception that we're separate. And certainly it looks as though I am separate from other people and other phenomena. And as long as we think we are separate, we're going to suffer. We suffer because we feel that we have to defend ourselves. We feel that we have to find something in this world that will make us happy. And then the habits of mind, basically, of wanting, needing, you know, thirsting desire, as well as the habit of ill will, aversion, keep it away. Whether it's turned outwards or inwards doesn't really matter. Those habits arise out of this sense that I can find something in the world to make me happy. And I can keep away everything else that's going to make me suffer. And certainly speaking for myself, when I'm not somewhat awake, when I'm not really paying attention, when, say, I'm hurrying around here from place to place, what's the habitual response? If there's something that I want and somebody's, you know, in in front of me in the way, the sense is they're in the way of what I need to make me happy. And the sense that if there's something I don't want and I see someone coming that's going to cause me trouble, the sense is their trouble, get them away. You know, I need to protect myself. It's just the habitual response when we're not, you know, even a little bit awake. And so when we're so self-absorbed, basically referring everything that happens back to me, as I said the other night, me, 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 my, 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 how does this affect me? How can I be happy? When we do that, each moment that we're buying into that is a moment that the sense of separation and needing to protect is very real. I just want to say non-separation doesn't mean that we can't tell the difference between, you know, me and you. It doesn't mean that the visual field gets all blurred together, you know, and you can't tell which is the curry and which is the rice, you know? <laughs> I mean, sometimes people think that, well, how am I going to function, you know? How do I know whether I should be the one sitting in the meditation or the one talking, you know? It doesn't mean that. It, useful distinctions still apply, but it, does, it means that we don't have to 
buy into the absolute separation that our minds create around it. So one thing the metta practice helps us do is begin to recognize consciously more what the space of simple connection feels like and to recognize actually how accessible it is because metta practice is not about creating some rarefied, really amazing unitive state that is different from our daily experience. You know, that would, that would be nice, and sometimes it comes that there's a state so strong that it feels really different from our regular experience. But what's most important to recognize is that metta is simply about connection. And it's something that's part of our daily experience because it's really a truer expression of how things are than is greed or fear or ill will. And so the metta practice is just helping us consciously uh, learn how to recognize, have a bit more confidence that it's actually possible to access consciously and to begin to have some faith and trust in the experience of of metta, of friendliness, of loving-kindness itself. And then we begin to experientially, even if it doesn't go through our intellect, have more consciously the experience that we're not so separate. Sort of like that question someone brought up a few mornings ago in in the morning meditation period about noticing that sense of synchronicity as a retreat goes on. And I really think it's quite applicable here because when we're not lost in greed and aversion, we actually notice how much more our energies all kind of blend together, affect each other. Actually, no one here can really do something that doesn't have some effect on other people. That's just how it is. So we start to see that more. We start to believe it, to trust it more. And we practice simply because we're so used to looking through the lens of separation that we need to give ourselves a little oomph to trust in the other way. This is from Nyoshul Ken, who was, a, who was a wonderful Tibetan teacher, from a chapter of his book. The chapter is called Basic Buddha Dharma, just the basics. And he says, the difference between the impure and the pure mind, the deluded mind and the enlightened mind, is mainly a difference of narrowness and openness. In our deluded state, our mind or heart, mind, heart's the same word in these languages, our mind is extremely narrow. For example, we live for ourselves and rarely consider the infinity of sentient beings. The more constricted and narrow the mind, the more it thinks only of itself, disregarding the well-being, happiness, and suffering of others. Conversely, the enlightened Buddha mind is one who considers the infinity of sentient beings rather than being solely concerned with her own ego and individuality. Thus, the entire path from an ordinary being to Buddhahood is the gradual opening of the mind, of the heart. 
the concept of growth is used here from the moving from a narrow attitude focused principally on oneself to an open, loving heart whose scope instinctively encompasses the infinity of sentient beings. But we start from where we are. We don't have to think that starting from here, we should naturally and completely be able to open our heart and mind and at all times, in all situations, completely consider the infinity of sentient beings. You know? We need to be realistic and start where we are. And that's the point of this practice, of the metta practice. Because as Guy mentioned last night, as we, when we really look, just with the eyes of wisdom, we, we come upon quite deeply the essential basic goodness that you could say is the truest expression of who we are, of our nature. And I know everyone here has touched that in many times. We all do. It's not so esoteric. And because of that, I don't think anyone would be here on a spiritual path at all, practicing so intensively as this, if we didn't have some inner knowing of this truth on some level. And a lot of our knowing is intellectual, of course, but not all of it. And what practice does is, is help us continually make that move from intellectually knowing something, which is the beginning, but knowing it from, from the gut, from our experience in ourselves, is very different because that's when we can begin to respond to ourselves and respond to life and respond to situations from, from the deep knowing of non-separation, from knowing that the power of friendliness, of connectedness, of compassion is much stronger than the power of fear and the power of greed. You know, we Like in my own mind, I think I know that. And sometimes I really know that. But there's other times, again, as I say, when the instinctive reaction is, no, I don't like that, get away. You know, That's going to keep me safe. So we don't judge that, but that's why we practice. Well, that's why I practice anyway. You find out why you practice and see. It could be for something different. But it's not to create something new. Metta practice or vipassana. Metta is not creating something new. It's simply uncovering the most natural context, the most natural expression of the truth of who we are, and then learning to trust it enough to act from that place. So just a little bit to describe what we mean by the mental state of metta, loving-kindness itself, you know, I think it's really simple. Just friendliness, kindness, in a very natural way. Take the example if you walk outside and under normal circumstances, no big things going on for you. And there's a couple of small children just playing and laughing and throwing a ball back and forth. And under normal circumstances, it doesn't trigger some traumatic memory or something. It's, we just normally feel a sense of, of friendliness, of connection with the kids, right? We don't have to think about it. We don't have to dredge it up. Oh, yeah, cute little kids, isn't it nice, you know? (laughs) Or take a puppy if you hate children. Take a puppy. (laughs) Take a kitten. Baby animals have that, you know. It's hard to get too judgmental. 
But it's natural. That's a natural expression of metta, simple connectedness. It doesn't have any big deal around it. You don't want something back from the children or from the puppy. You don't say, well, they're cute, but if they had on different colored overalls, they'd be even cuter. It's just quite a natural response of the heart, kind of a generosity you wish them well. That's really the essence of metta. It's not something we don't know. You know, it's more learning how we can elicit it, rather how to move towards the connectedness, the natural heart, open-hearted generosity, rather than moving towards what creates in our minds and hearts the sense of fear or wanting or separation. Metta is also inclusiveness. It includes all aspects. It doesn't just see a part of a situation, and I'll talk more about that in a minute. It also has a real spacious quality, not narrowing down. Just you see the children, it's really lovely. There's a sense of connectedness, of wishing them well, and you know, you don't feel tight and close then. It's just kind of open. And in that space, in that moment, if someone else wanders into your field of vision, it's most likely that that sense of connectedness and well wishing naturally extends to them, you know just at first, before we have time to think of a reason not to. It just naturally extends. It's kind of inclusive. I was recently in uh, Burma, both practicing for a few weeks and also teaching up in the north. I was teaching. And the teaching was fine. It was like a regular retreat for Westerners. But what really um, was a transformative experience for me was the time that we spent not teaching but hanging out with uh, our, our Burmese friends, the people who were helping to run the retreat, that were cooking for the retreat, some of the people who were translating, some of the people who live in the monastery, in the monastery in northern Burma. Because the experience was one of this simple um, non-judging friendliness, really meta. I felt that for the two weeks I was there, I was uh, really encased, really surrounded in a field of meta. Just a simple friendliness that was welcoming to whoever came. It wasn't like it was specifically directed to me. I remember at one point, Steve Smith, who I was teaching with, who's been there for many years teaching, said, oh, Carol, the people here really love you. And I said, yeah, well, it's my impression they really love everybody. You know, <laughs> they have nothing specifically to do with me. And what was so nice about it is it's just low-key, natural acceptance. Somebody comes, they're really happy to see you, and just however you are is fine. That's what's so beautiful about metta or friendliness. However, the, the Burmese people were was fine. They live together. They know each other's little peccadilloes. They laugh about it. It's fine, you know. And however you are is fine. One man who is the brother of one of the Sayadaws, one of the teachers there, was born deaf and mute, unable to speak. And um, so he's been, you know, he's, he must be in his 50s or 60s now. And he's been living there, and his brother sort of takes care of him. But he's great, because without hearing, I mean, you can see, you can get around fine, without hearing or speaking, with his hands, he's like the most expressive person I ever met. 
And he has just one little hand gesture that would describe each person. Like if he has to talk about someone, someone has curly hair, that'll be, you know, he'll be describing the person that way. Or glasses, or if they're always frowning, you know. Whatever it is that describes it. And there's no sense of, of judgment, you know, about picking out that person. If they're really thin, be like, if they're really fat. And whereas here I could really imagine somehow easily getting into is that what he thinks about me? Is that the main thing that he picks out about me? You know, what about, why does he, you know? And it's just none of that there. Just this real acceptance that it's actually transformative to be in an atmosphere uh, where it's that simple, that day-to-day, and that non-judging. And it feels just normal. Like, it's like, oh, this is the way we could live. This is really a possible... And I'm not saying everyone's happy, happy. I mean, there's a lot of difficulty, a lot of suffering, a lot of problems. I'm not saying people don't have arguments, just normal people. But the sense of connecting, because there really is a deep sense of connecting that once, once someone there's met you, they don't forget your name and they don't forget your face. I see how, for me, it's really... I really have to concentrate to remember names and faces. Sure, I meet a lot of names and faces, but so do they. And they really, there's this sense of just presence and connectedness that's very powerful. But it's simple. And that's the thing I want to bring out about metta, about loving kindness. It's just this natural, simple connectedness that we all know, that we all can uh, begin to have more trust in. I think I said the other day in the metta sitting that uh, technically the proximate cause of metta arising as a mental state, friendliness, connectedness, non-judging, acceptance, the proximate cause, that means the immediate preceding thing for metta to arise, the strongest cause, is seeing the good, is seeing the wholesome or the beautiful in a being, anyone, ourselves or another. And that's true. But it doesn't mean that we're blind or somehow that in seeing the good, we don't see anything else, which is uh, a lot of our uh, kind of intellectual or philosophical problem with that. It's just a diluted kind of mushy, you know, soft filter gauze on the lens seeing the world through rose-colored glasses, and I can't trust that, you know, because there's problems, there's difficulties, and just turn it on yourself, right? How easy is it for us when we say, okay, sit here and really focus on the good in yourself. Really let it in. Do that with full commitment. It's hard, isn't it? Certainly isn't something we have a lot of practice in. And so... Seeing the good is the cause for this natural connectedness, this spontaneous friendliness to arise. Like, take the little kids again. You're just seeing their natural playfulness, the the innocence of children, boom, you know, we're there. But it doesn't mean we can't see the whole picture. It means we actually, because of the connection, can respond more appropriately. So say it first. The sweet kids, the innocents were there, really connected. And then we start to see that one of them is actually a major brat. 
and the one kid is really taunting the other and really, you know, not actually hurting, but really being bratty. But we see that from the place of connection. It doesn't hide what's going on. But from the place of connection, rather than saying, oh, that kid's a brat, just throw him away, you know, forget him. We can actually, if intervention is necessary, we can intervene from the place of connection rather than from the place of rejection, rather than from the place of judgment, you know. We, if anything, see more clearly when we're connected in a non-judging way. We see more clearly the whole picture. It's in no way a one-sided blindness, you know. Aversion is a one-sided blindness, and desire is a one-sided blindness. Desire, we only see what we want, and anything else is in the way. Aversion, we see what we don't want, you know. And as Guy said, it, it can be very skillful, as someone said this morning, to actually notice that there are other things arising in the universe than what I don't like and what I don't want. It really helps to balance. Metta actually works in that. But so, metta is brought about by tuning into the good, but it's not at all one-sided. It's very strong and very powerful. Because we don't put someone in a box with metta, we see the whole picture. We don't put them in a box. Oh, they do this bad thing. That's who they are. Oh, they do this good thing. They couldn't possibly do anything bad because they're so wonderful. You see the whole picture from the place of connection rather than from the place of fear. So the metta practice itself, the way we're doing it here, it's not about creating and holding on to a particular emotional feeling. And this, I think, is a very, a very tricky... Um, it's very tricky for us to get that practice-wise because, again, we are so uh, result and achievement-oriented. And anyway, we feel like we need a little bit of feedback that something's happening. You know, I mean, that's fair enough until we, till we have some inner trust from our own experience... And if you just sit here and say these phrases, you know, from now until, you know, a month from now, and you never felt one thing ever, it would be understandable <laughs> if you had some doubts about the efficacy of the practice. So I'm saying it's natural. We want some feedback. But it isn't about that if we say these phrases and focus, we're going to get this one particular feeling, and then we're going to feel better and better and better, and that feeling is just going to stay stronger and stronger and stronger, and we're going to live in a cloud of metta from now on. I mean, I think you know that I'm exaggerating it. But just check it out. The next time you're doing the metta practice and you're feeling frustrated, check out. What are you looking for? What do you think ought to be happening? But the formal practice, it doesn't matter if we have what we would call an emotional feeling at all. It really doesn't matter. Because, as I said, the essence of metta is connection. And it's simply about connecting either with ourselves, with the sense of the being that we're sending it to, the phrases, all beings, whatever. Just that connection, which means a moment without aversion, without desire, without delusion. Sounds a lot like mindfulness, doesn't it? And the two are very closely connected. Simply a moment of connection 
that we are, mm, how would I say, directing attention deliberately towards the connection and away from the tendencies of mind, of greed and aversion that create separation. So we're doing that deliberately. It's a deliberate direction or inclination of mind towards connection. Basically, wise intention, the second stage of the Eightfold Path. Wise thought. And the Buddha, when he talks about wise thought or right thought, he specifically says that wise thought, the antidote or the wise thought, um, you substitute for thoughts of ill will, thoughts of friendliness, thoughts of metta, thoughts of kindness. It's really quite useful and practical. So what we're doing is cultivating and strengthening the inclination of mind, the intention of mind towards connection. It's not always going to feel like a lot's going on, but each time we direct it to, say, benefactor, and you deliberately feel a sense of their good quality, offer the phrase, may you be free from inner and outer harm, that's a sense of inclining the mind toward connection. You may feel it more or less strongly. The intention may be more or less strong. That's not what's so important. What's so important is that cultivation of that wise intention, basically breaking the habit of seeing how we're separate. Oh, yes, they're really so good. I could never be like them. In fact, they're so good, it's, a, it's like a, almost an insult to them for me to even be offering them loving kindness. So paltry and feeble is my loving kindness, you know? <laughs> you can take even the good and create separation out of it. Yeah. But so we're just inclining towards the connection. The way we're teaching it here also, it's combined, the, the inclination, the cultivation of intention is combined with uh, uh, a concentration of samadhi practice. Hence the focus on the image of the person and the, the repetition one at a time of each of the phrases and just coming back to that over and over. I think Guy mentioned last night, the two together, the samadhi aspect that begins to come in gives a a real steadiness, a a power, a confidence to the um, recognition or the intention of mind of metta, the recognition of what that connectedness feels like. It just really empowers it in a way. So this particular form of the practice brings these two things together. The wise inclination of mind, wise intention, together with a concentration uh, and absorption practice. In all different, um, in all different um, aspects of Buddhism in the different schools, there may be many different practices that also cultivate loving kindness and compassion, the other Brahma Viharas. I'm not saying one's better than the other. You know, they might pull out different aspects. This is just the way in this Theravada tradition we're, we're teaching it to you as we've learned it. So it combines these two things. So we're transforming. Part of the difficulties that come up in our metta practice, one is 
the same difficulties that come up in terms of the vipassana, in terms of coming back to the breath, although the mind just basically doesn't want to do it. You know, it's a two-year-old having a temper tantrum and it doesn't want to come back. It wants to run off and do its own thing. So we've talked about that and it's just the same exact thing going on. Another aspect that comes up that we sometimes think is in the way of the metta practice, but it's actually part of the purification, the purification of our uh, confused, deluded habits into a more strengthening of wise intention, is that we really deeply experience at times in the metta practice the habits and reactions of our mind and heart that block, that get in the way, that obstruct the experience of connectedness, which are, guess what, you know, desire and aversion. They seem they basically block our experience of anything that is, is more deeply true. But it's very easy to think that, that something's wrong because you're trying to send metta to yourself and you keep running into loathing or anger or just impatience with the practice, you know, or you're trying to send metta to a good friend and you end up fantasizing about the incredible vacation the two of you could take together, you know, when you get out of retreat. You go, well, how did I get here? I'm just trying to send some, you know, kind wishes to this person. But this is really an intrinsic aspect of the loving-kindness practice because in uh, cultivating, inclining the mind towards the wise intention, we will necessarily run into the habits of falling into our unwise ways of thinking, the, the desire, the wanting, and the ill will, the aversion. In fact, it's almost as if the purification of the metta practice highlights these habits of separation and big relief, so to speak. And instead of thinking there's something wrong with that, if we can actually recognize what's happening, then we also begin to see how these, these habits of mind, of desire and ill will, how they create suffering and separation. And this is really freeing. I'm serious. This is really where I learned so much about freedom and non-separation through the metta practice by seeing experientially how desire and yearning could be mistaken for metta, except that we start to suffer and feel separate, and how ill will is actually creating a separation that doesn't need to be there. So it's fascinating. I just want to say a little about those. Um, in the classic way of teaching this practice, from the, the commentaries to the Theravada tradition, this isn't so much in the suttas, but in the commentaries, in talking about the practice in the state of friendliness, kindness, spacious, metta. They talk about two mental states that are called the near enemy and the far enemy. For each of the Brahma Viharas has a near enemy and a far enemy. I'll just talk about metta tonight. Far enemy is sort of obvious. I mean, we have these warrior-like terms, enemy. That's the... Buddha came from the warrior clan. And if you read the suttas, really a lot of the metaphors are very kind of warrior battle prone, 
That was just the culture. Far enemy is the opposite, basically, ill will. That that makes sense, you know, we can understand. As Guy said, if there's ill will, there's not metta and vice versa. The near enemy is a state that is actually can be confused for metta when we're not quite paying attention. And that that near enemy is actually sometimes it's called lust. I would say it's more um, desire. Affection, but just desire in itself, a kind of yearning, craving, that oddly enough, we can confuse with loving kindness. And loving kindness practice tends to highlight, to bring it up. I'll just say a little about each of these. You might notice when you're practicing, say to yourself or say to a friend, and you start just connecting, you really just feel the sense of their goodness, the the quality about them that you can connect with. You're offering the phrases, just wishing them well. And the desire can creep in in many ways. It can creep in about wanting to feel the metta a little better, wanting to feel good, wanting them to know and feel the metta that you're sending them, wanting the metta to somehow fix them or change them or make them happy. Have you had that? You just If you do it good enough, then they'll really be happy always. You know, and sometimes people want to leave a retreat and go call up the person and say, you know, how are you doing the last few days? Have you noticed any difference? <laughs> this is move from metta to wanting. That's, it's a little subtle, but after a while, not so subtle. It feels different. Or what's more common even is sending the wishes, but suddenly you start wanting something back. I first noticed it when I was sending metta to a good friend, and suddenly I started noticing how I wished you would call me a little bit more, you know? We really ought to spend a little bit more time together, you know? I wonder if she really feels the same for me that I'm feeling for her. And this really easily creeps in when it's family members or partners or children, you know, the what-if aspect. Real metta doesn't have conditions. It doesn't have that neediness that wants something back. It doesn't have that sense of, I'll love you because you love me. It doesn't ultimately have anything to do with making ourselves feel better. In that moment, it's just an open-hearted generosity of heart. Of course, the paradox is that in that moment we feel great, but we're not doing it to feel great. That's the trick. In that moment of just really wishing someone well, it's completely spacious, non-needy, non-wanting. Play with this. Say with someone that you're really close to. A partner's a good one, where you can subtly feel the difference when you're just wishing them well, and you might see areas that they're suffering or areas that are difficult, but you really just can connect to that love and wishing them well. Even you might have something you want to tell them, but it's out of a place of metta. And when it subtly changes, and you might be saying the same thing, you might be wanting to share with them the same insight you had about them, but suddenly <laughs> it's so that they could treat you a little bit better. You know, 
Notice the difference of how that feels, and you'll get a sense of the difference between metta and wanting, metta and yearning. Another way we get confused is that somehow when we're feeling that sense of we're not enough or insufficiency or isolation, and the thought of metta as love is more a sense of needing, love as needing something to complete us, but we still think of it as love, a kind of a yearning. And if we're not careful, we can call that love and equate it with metta, but it's not the same at all. This is from Mark Epstein. When we're plagued with a sense of unworthiness, it's easy to feel deficient, not enough, and to think that the love of another person is the only possible solution to this plight. Meditation tends to work against this assumption of deficiency by restoring the capacity for connection from the inside. In doing this, It challenges the common assumption of our culture about where connection comes from. In the Buddhist view, connection is already present. We're not as separate and distinct as we think we are. Connection is our natural state. We just have to learn to permit it, to allow it. Desire, insufficiency, neediness, The Buddha called it a maker of limits. It constricts and narrows our heart and mind. The friendliness, the generosity of heart, of metta, of simple connection acceptance opens us to spaciousness, to vastness. You can almost feel this experientially. Aversion being the far enemy, ill will, the far enemy of metta. I mean, that's not hard to see. What can be difficult for us is to really trust that the way of connection, the power of friendliness, of acceptance, of loving kindness, that that's really stronger and more of a protection for us than fear and ill will and anger are, you know. I know it's easy for me, it's easy to think that, well, ill will is a natural response to something that's unpleasant. Of course, it should be kept away from me. Who wants to connect with something that's unpleasant or scary or somebody that I don't like? One thing to remember is that metta doesn't necessarily mean liking, and it doesn't mean approving of harmful or difficult or unpleasant behaviors. It simply means connecting with what is rather than fearing and seeing in that connection a way for a more appropriate response. I remember um, some years ago I was teaching a retreat that had some uh, very active environmentalists in it and I was teaching with Sharon Salzberg And in the early days, we're in a group uh, describing the loving-kindness practice, which we would introduce in the afternoon, much as we do here. And some people in the group saying, not having practiced the loving-kindness, but just hearing about it, saying, well, I don't want to, you know, it's too mushy. You know, I don't want to practice that. I need my anger. 
I don't want to lose my edge, you know, that sense of, of needing anger. But I think we can confuse anger with discrimination. You know, actually, when Guy talked about aversive types and greed types, the so-called flip side of the aversive type is discriminating wisdom. And myself also being an aversive type, one thing about being aversive is you also think you're right. You see things clearly. It just has this tinge of, you know, negativity that's completely extra. Um, And it doesn't always see things clearly, but it really thinks it does. But it's quite possible to have a very incisive, discriminating wisdom together with connectedness and friendliness. It doesn't have to be fueled by aversion. But often we think the anger is my protection. You know, I don't want to let it go. And in this retreat, I remember one person in particular who uh, was very strong about not wanting particularly to do the metta and had been very active for years. And at the end of the retreat, it was one of the most, I don't know, really touching experiences of my, my teaching life. This person was weeping, basically, at the end of the retreat and said that um, through the years, anger had really been fueling him in the environmental work that he had done, and he felt that it had served him. But he was also seeing that he couldn't just isolate it to when he needed it to do the work, that it was spilling over into his family, into his life, and basically eating him up from the inside. And that's what happens, you know. And just seeing that there's another way, another way, how to be clear, how to be strong, without making who we don't agree with or what we don't like into the other, you know. We take what we don't like about someone, we put them in a box, and they become the other, the enemy. You know, that defines them, that thing we don't like. And it's so hard sometimes to, to find the courage or even how to connect without denying the difficult, but to also see that there's something else. As Thich Nhat Hanh talks about bringing up seeds of joy in the difficult, it doesn't deny the difficult. It just sees there's something human somewhere about this person, you know. And we start from that connection, and then we can spread out and see. Often, that person is ourselves, you know. That's why it's very important to just find one little kind thought that you had a year and a half ago, you know, and think about that and really let it in. It doesn't take much to make a crack in that web of otherness and and begin to relate. I read a really, uh, to me, it really spoke a a little incident, um, I was reading a biography of Martin Luther King, how he really had, of course, this deep commitment to nonviolence, and it manifested really by not making people the other. So this incident, uh, I think he was on a plane and in the early 60s, and a Justice Department lawyer was on the plane talking to him and trying to convince Dr. King that one of his, one of the people who was an advisor to him, a New York attorney, I believe he was, uh, who was a close advisor to Martin Luther King, had previously had some kind of communist connections, or maybe once he went to a communist meeting, who knows. If you remember 
from the 60s how really paranoid uh, the government was about anything that had anything to do with communism. And so this Justice Department lawyer was really, you know, grabbing Dr. King's ear and telling him, you know, this guy's a communist, it's really bad for you, you can't keep using him as an advisor, it's going to make the whole everything you do suspect, and on and on and on. He said, and Dr. King was listening very politely, you know, taking in what he said, but clearly not agreeing. And suddenly, the lawyer got it. He said, just like a light went off, he said, oh, this is a man who is so committed to, to nonviolence, so committed, you know, to the, to the path of love, to not um, ever choosing hatred as a, as a motive, which I read somewhere else, he said, that, that even if, if the worst segregationist church bomber were to come up to Dr. King in, um, in a moment of sincerity, you know, want to talk to him or even shake his hand, he would never shut him away, you know. So if he's not going to make someone like that the other, how do I expect him to say he's not going to have anything to do with one of his friends because the guy went to some communist meeting sometime? And I, I, I just love that that sense that you don't make anyone the other, while doing everything you can from that place of connectedness to try to change harmful, you know, really harmful, terrible behavior. But you don't reject the person. So that's, to me, one of the more powerful aspects of the strength, the power that can come to our own motivations, our own actions and response in the world to ourselves and to others when we can consciously access connectedness rather than believing that fear and separation is our best protection. Try it in little ways, you know. Don't go for the biggest one. Try it when you're in line in in, um, a supermarket. And the person in front of you is in the express lane with 14 items, and you're only allowed to have 10, and you're in a hurry. How many times do you count their items and say, don't they know? Can't they see? Instead, just try and connect with some aspect of them, you know? Could be me next time. Or when you're at a... (laughs) I mean, I would never do that, of course. When you're in traffic. And you're really in a hurry. And the light is just turning orange and the car in front of you stops. And easily three more cars could have made it through that light. (laughs) But that car in front of you stopped. Can you meet that? Meet that person as a person? Or are they, you know, the other blocking traffic, complete nincompoop, you know? Just practice in little ways. And it's amazing, honestly. The first time I'll connect, the first phrase I go, may you be free from danger. Yeah, right, give me a break. You know, the mind, don't even try. You're being ridiculous. <laughs> Just try again. Try again. And I often find by the second repetition of the phrases, it's really like us instead of me and them. Just for a moment. It's not a huge thing, but it's, it is a huge thing. Just practice it in little ways here in the food line, when the person in front of you is going through the door so mindfully and you just want to wring their neck, <laughs> see if you can feel a sense of appreciation for their mindfulness rather than thinking it means something bad about me. 
So with this practice, we start where we are. And mindfulness is also a place where loving-kindness, connection, acceptance shows up. Metta as this aspect of non-judging connectedness is actually intrinsic to a moment of sati, a moment of mindfulness, isn't it? It's not like you're only going to experience metta if you're sitting here saying, may I be happy. We experience it often. Notice how you meet a moment of your experience as you go through the day. Maybe just reflecting on uh, the difficult things that came up today. You know, How did you meet that? Boredom, discomfort, anxiety, fear, sleepiness. How did you meet the beautiful things? Compassion, gratitude, joy, calm, peace. You know, Did we make those unpleasant things the other? Did we make ourselves somehow bad for experiencing them? Did we set up a sense of separation when those things happen? Or do we simply meet it? Oh, yes, this too. Oh, yes, awareness of discomfort is like this. You know, That's metta in that moment. The same with the beautiful, with the lovely, with the things that we like. Do we just meet it? Oh, yes, calm is like this. Joy is like this. And when it goes, that's fine. Or is there that clutching, that need to hold on to it to make ourselves feel okay, to give ourselves some sense of you know, being somebody or at least just being okay to ourselves. So really seeing that a moment of metta is accessible anywhere in that sense of friendliness and clear seeing just with whatever's arising in the moment. And we start where we are. Again, my friends in Burma being held in this metta field it gave me a really... Uh, I was having a conversation one day with one of the men who was translating. And at the end of um, the talks, uh, Sayadaw um, Ulakana would talk one day, and then either Steve Smith or I would talk another day. And he, Steve calls them fusion retreats, where it's the really straight Burmese-Asian teaching. And then we would kind of modify it the way we teach here. And you don't really know how we modify it. But as Gil said... The instructions are you sit down, you're told how to note everything that arises, you give it half an hour instruction, and that's it. You go do it, you know. And the Sayadaw would say things, okay, anger arises, you note two or three times, and then it's gone, and you go back to the breath. And so in the questions he was going, and I was talking to people, and people were saying, but, you know, in the West, you, you describe how to be with the anger and how to feel it in the body, and, you know, you don't say it just goes away in two or three notes, and, in fact, it doesn't go away in two or three notes, you know. And we're saying, yes, we know it doesn't. And everything we said, that's really what you do. You feel it in the body. And, you know, just the usual rap, like, just like Guy gave you this morning. And I was talking to the translator later, and he said, wow, that was really interesting. That was really helpful. I'd like to hear more like that. And I said, why? He says, well, you know, it doesn't go away for us in two or three notings either. <laughs> and I said, oh, I always thought maybe it did. <laughs> oh, no, it doesn't go away for us. He said, but then we say, I said, so what do you do? He said, well, this is very helpful, the instructions. He said, but then I said, well, we talk about it because we Westerners, we get really upset with ourselves. We think we're doing something wrong. We beat ourselves up. We get really negative, you know, because it didn't go away. He says, oh, we just say, oh, well, never mind. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's the difference. It's a huge difference. <laughs> So, if we could do that, okay, so there's anger. We noted it still can we go, oh, well, never mind. <laughs> Anger's here. And just keep on noticing it without adding any other story. You know, we're not creating some separation about it. It's amazing, but that's metta. Ajahn Sumedho, I love the way he describes it. He says, metta does not necessarily mean liking anything. It simply means an attitude of not dwelling on the unpleasantness or the false inside or outside of oneself. Now, with metta, one isn't blinding oneself with an ideal. Instead, one is witnessing the unpleasantness in a situation, in a thing, in a person, or in oneself, but without creating anything around it. It's just this without creating anything around it in space. That's what I consider to be metta. Just connecting and don't create anything around the unpleasant. The same with the pleasant. Totally connecting and don't create anything around. That allows for clear seeing. There's no sense of separation and not even a sense of incredible unity either because that's already a thought. It's just how things are in a moment. It's so simple. And it's really very available, very accessible in our moment-to-moment experience. Formal metta practice, in our vipassana practice, just in walking around, you know? Just notice that simple connectedness, that friendliness that doesn't need to create anything around experience. So I'll just end a little short quotation that shows Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.